What a kindness of God to allow us the privilege of being his people and to allow us to gather together. It never ceases to amaze me, both at the ordinary, just reality that it is that we get to gather, but also just the rich privilege when we come together and we link our arms and our hearts together around who God is, and in particular, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Um, he does a miracle for us each and every week, and so I'm so grateful for that. Um, as we're going to jump into Haggai chapter 1, uh, Michelangelo, the uh, Renaissance painter and sculptor, sculptor, famously said, criticize by creating. Criticize by creating. So there are two ways to affect change in the world. The first is to point out brokenness and darkness, right? And uh, most of us are naturally inclined to do that, right? It's not that hard to point out that something that's going wrong. But what Michelangelo was getting at, because the world that he came out of, he lived in the 1400s, it was right on the back end of the um, bubonic plague that took out uh, about half of Europe at the time. So, um, This was a world that was ripe for change. This was a world that was longing for beauty. And he said the the best way to affect change is to criticize the darkness that you see by creating something beautiful. Now, I remember being a a new believer, and I was in the Navy, and I had just the privilege of touring Rome and going through the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel. And... um, as I was in uh, the Vatican, I came across his, one of his most famous sculpt, um, sculptings, the Pieta. And it was this beautiful marble statue of Mary holding Jesus coming down off of the cross. And I, as a new believer, it was this wonderful intersection of both faith and art. And in that moment, I was able to realize just both the, the beauty and the brokenness of the cross. I mean, you can see, I mean, it's, this sculpture is famous for the details, especially on Jesus' hands and Mary's face. And um, it's just stunning to behold, just the, the scale and the grandeur of it. But when we're looking at the book of Haggai and we're talking about our mission as a church, right, one of the things that we want to do is to be able to allow God to create something beautiful in us. What we're going to look at this morning is how God changes the world, right? He doesn't do it by merely waving a wand and making everything better. He actually does it by criticizing the darkness in the world by creating something beautiful in the lives and the hearts of his people. And that's what we're going to look at As we look at Haggai chapter 1, we're going to read verses 12 through 15. So if you have your Bibles open and you're able, would you stand with me as we read verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and that's a mouthful, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now that you would help us to encounter you in all of your beauty. I pray that you would do something deep and lasting here, that you would build something beautiful out of the brokenness of our lives, that you would, out of our very lives, make us into the remnant that you have designed us to be, that we would listen to and respond to who you are. I pray that both a sense of reverence and awe and hope and joy would fill our lives as we step into the purposes that you have for us as your people. To do that, we need you to send the Spirit to help us. For apart from you, we can't do anything, but we have this wonderful comfort that you love us and that you are for us always, all the time. So we step forward in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there are only three verses we're going to look at this morning, but they are full of deep truth and just very practical wisdom. I mean, this is a picture of how God changes the world. The DNA is here. So on a macro level, we have the cause, which is God. God is always the prime mover in the story of God. He's the one that initiates. We're the ones that respond. He's the one that speaks. We're the one that listen and obey. And you see that dynamic, right? But then it also shows how God does something beautiful in the life of his people where they are responsive to him. You see, where he's not passive, just allowing them to live out the string of their lives. We looked at last week the truth that God was trying to stir up the spirit of his people because they had grown apathetic to his purposes, right? He was declaring war on indifference and just trying to go about building our own lives and our own kingdoms. So in this passage, what we're going to see is God stirring up the heart of his people to respond and to act and to move and to step into the purpose that he has for their life. He wants them to turn their back on apathy and indifference forever. And he does it in a pretty unique way. So how does God change the world? These three verses are a blueprint for how God works. And the first thing that he does is stir the hearts of leaders. You see that God is speaking in this moment to Haggai, who is a prophet. He hears the voice of God. He becomes a mouthpiece for God. And then he speaks directly to Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah at the time, and Joshua the high priest, who was serving as the high priest of the people of God. This was both the political sphere of the people of God and also was the religious sphere. All of this is to communicate a picture that God cares about all of their life. He wants to do a work in them so deep that can't be contained in just a church service. Like He wants it to break out of the walls of the people of God, out into the streets so that God's glory is on full display. So God stirs the heart of the leadership. And it's important that he addresses the hearts of the leaders because... Honestly, it was the leaders were the ones that were unfaithful in this book. Zerubbabel was the governor. And instead of having the people of God 
go and rebuild the temple, he had them working on his own house, right? He had them using the resources and the time to build his own kingdom instead of building the kingdom of God. So God stirs them up. But these leaders also are to be commended because they respond humbly. They repent. And then because of their repentance, the people of God follow suit and they turn their ear and they turn their lives to listen to the Lord of hosts. This is the God of angel armies. So this is an invitation for the people of God to listen to and to respond to the voice of of God. Now, repentance gets a bad rap, mostly because it's usually taught as uh, a form of self-hatred where you're supposed to beat yourself up and where you're supposed to feel bad about yourself. But really what repentance is, uh, is aligning yourself and your life with the author and the perfecter of your faith, fixing your eyes on Jesus who wants to bring you life and peace. So this is an invitation for us as the people of God to say, We are your people. We are inclined to your voice and we will listen and we will respond. We will no longer sit by passively and in apathy, but we will rise up by the power that you have given us to be your people. So this is to affect all of life. Now, leadership is essential to God's plan, right? It's not optional. And listen, I get it. In the United States of America, leaders inside the church have gotten it wrong almost as much as they've gotten it right. right? It grieves me as a leader to think that my own personal shortcomings and weaknesses affect people. But all of that doesn't negate the way that God works and the way that God moves. Leadership is essential throughout God's plan. God uses and stirs up leaders towards his purposes. And in America, I just want you to kind of understand where we are as a group of people, right? So in the early 1980s and the 1990s, the church started to take their cue from the world, right? So they started studying business models and trying to bring those things into the church. Listen, I read business books. I think they're helpful. All truth is God's truth. But listen, The world is supposed to look to the church for what it means to lead, not the church from the world, right? And we've gotten those things backwards. What Haggai is um, portraying here is a picture of spiritual leadership, a leadership that is both bold and humble, a, a form of leadership that takes on the nature of a servant yet fulfills the purposes of God. Leadership in the plan of God is essential and it's modeled and it's exemplified by Jesus Christ. There is a form of spiritual leadership that is essential for God's people to go forward. And the only thing that can move God's people forward out of apathy is people that are inclined to hear from and respond to the Lord and stir up the spirit of other people. The church is meant to continually raise up leaders, both men and women, who fulfill the purpose of God in their generation. That's who we are as the church. Listen to this quote. Every one of you, if you are called to Jesus Christ, is a leader, whether you know it or not. Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck, in their book, Designed to Lead, says this, The center of the church is the gospel. 
but the center of leadership development must be the church, meaning that the leaders who will ultimately transform communities and change the world come from the church. These leaders carry with them into all spheres of life and culture the the conviction of a people who are called out ones, of a people that have been brought from death to life through Jesus. That's who leaders are. These leaders are designed to serve others because they have been served first by Christ. These leaders are empowered to sacrificially offer themselves to others because their hearts have been transformed with the sacrifice of Jesus for us. God has designed His people to lead. Let that weigh on your soul. From the first recordings of history, God has made it clear that He has designed creation to be led by His covenant people. More than that, He has decided what His people are to do with that leadership. Whether you are called to lead in your home, in the marketplace, in God's church, or in your community, if you are called by God, then you are called to lead others to know and to worship Jesus. Right? That's who we are as the people of God. We are caught up in the only mission that will never fail. We are caught up in the greatest drama that the world will ever know. And God is inviting every person that has his spirit living inside of them to raise up and to lead other people. It doesn't matter if that's in your home. That doesn't matter if you are a student and you are just going about your life on campus. God wants you to lead other people to know him. God wants to use you to see other people come to know Jesus Christ. There are no passive members in Christ's body. We are all leaders empowered by the Spirit of God. Listen, so as a local church, we are absolutely rock-solidly committed to equipping you to do that. So not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday night, we're going to begin a leadership training where we just want to gather men and women in this room that want to be equipped to fulfill their purpose in this generation. Right? So if you're interested in that, you can sign up for that at the resources table. We want to take seriously the reality that God invested his very spirit to live inside of us so that we would fulfill his purposes in and through our lives. We are all leaders, right? We're all leaders. We're all ministers, right? Some of us just get paid different ways, but we all are engaged in the mission of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German clergyman who spoke out about the injustices and um, the horrors of the Nazis who were, re- who were ruling during Germany during World War II. His outspokenness eventually cost him his life. And what's amazing as you look back on this period of history is the church's response to the Nazi party. Most of the people, right, they they weren't aligned with Bonhoeffer and this idea that people were called to live their lives against the injustice that was going on in the world. Most of them bought into the lie of privatized religion that you could just fulfill your purpose as long as you were submitting to the government. Maybe you were kind to other people, but they didn't think they had any voice to speak into the injustice of the world. They were very passive And this is what one of his biographers said. Not that Bonhoeffer believed that everybody must act as he did, but from where he was standing, 
he could see no possibility of retreat into any sinless, righteous, pious refuge. And this, this should mark the church in America. The sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. That's the American church, right? Come to a room. Gather together. Consume goods and services and go out and live your everyday ordinary lives. God wants to move so deeply here that we would be a group of people that listen and respond to who He is. He wants to pour out His Spirit so that we don't just become a group of isolated individuals that come in this room and have passive relationships. He actually wants us to join together so that we can change the world. That's what happened in the book of Haggai, and that's what God wants to do among us. So if you have any inclination in your heart to not be passive and to accept the responsibility that God has given you by entrusting you with the gospel and your spirit, his spirit, we would love to help you. So the first way that God creates a movement that changes the world is to stir up the hearts of leaders. The second thing that God does to change the world is to create a remnant. A remnant is a small band of people who are oriented to listening to and responding to God and his purposes. Margaret Mead famously said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Right? God has always worked through this idea of a remnant. A remnant, right? If, if you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, he is radically unconcerned with the crowd, right? He works with the crowd, but out of the crowd, he pulls people from being in the crowd to being disciples that follow him, right? And so God's design for us as a group of people is to take, right, I mean, everyone in this room and to move from being a part of a crowd to being a disciple to being a follower of Jesus to being united on his mission and for his purposes. The big idea of a remnant is that no matter how dark the world is, no matter how unfaithful the people of God are, that God will always fulfill his purposes. You see this all throughout Scripture. God is faithful to his people. He will build his church. He will save people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And the only question for us is what role do we get to play? Will we listen? Will we respond? And he invites us to do just that. A remnant is a people that respond to who God is. I'll give you a real practical example. My friend Amar and his wife Kamala, they live in the nation of Nepal. I first met them two years ago when traveled to their home. We drove 16 hours from the capital of Kathmandu, up into the mountains, up a mountain, down a mountain. I mean, this was the hardest trip that I've ever taken in my life. By the time we got done riding on, I mean, these aren't roads. I I remember driving out of town thinking, all right, these roads are going to get better. Like, we're going to hit an interstate, and this is going to be amazing. But 16 hours, and by the time I got there, like, I literally, I mean, and I'm a pretty tough guy, but I was almost in tears. I mean, (laughs) there were tigers like running around like this is where this guy lives so he lives on the backside of this mountain so his church 
He lives in the valley. There's a, a, a group of houses on this side of a mountain, and there's a group of houses on this side of the mountain. Everyone walks two hours down these mountains to the valley and then an hour back up to the church building where they gather every Sunday. And Amar and his wife, Camilla, they planted this church by themselves, right? If I'm not mistaken, this is right on the border of China, right? It's on the backside of a mountain. No one would ever see this group of people. They planted this church there, just them as a couple, There are 110 families inside of this village, and 75% of them have come to know and worship Jesus. That's what a remnant is. God is always working, regardless of what we see. So a crowd is visible. A remnant is invisible. We don't know who the remnant is, but God knows and God sees. And so he's always working out his purposes through his people. And the truth is that God has a remnant in this room, right? That God's doing something among us where we're listening to his voice and we're joining together and we're responding. And that is a gift from God that we can do that. But it's not just contained here, right? As as I've interacted with people throughout this city, there are pockets and there are people that are faithful, right? There are tons of people that are just going through the motions. I'm going to be honest with you out in town, but there are a group of faithful people that are living to make Jesus known. And what we want to do is we want to link arms with people like that so that God's purposes continually go forward. God has a remnant in this church and in this city. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we oriented to listening to and responding to God, right? Are we part of his remnant? I would suspect that most in this room, I mean, you may be here and you say, yes, I'm absolutely sold out to that. I'm doing that every day. There may be another group here that are saying, I want to be oriented to listening to and responding to God, but I don't know how. So we're going to talk a little bit. How do you become oriented to listening to God and his voice? First of all, We absolutely believe in the sufficiency of God's word. We believe that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is sufficient for life and godliness and practice. So we hold that tension in this hand. We also believe this other tension, this dynamic of the Holy Spirit that actually makes this word come alive and applies it to our hearts and allows us to begin to live it out. Right? So we want to hold both of those things in tension. God's not going to speak something to us that is antithetical to his word, but his spirit, when we are oriented to listening to him, will help us to apply his word in concrete ways. And so most of you probably do this and you don't even realize. Like you'll be reading a passage of scripture that you've read over and over again. And then there's a moment, right, where that passage begins to read you, right? That's the voice of God speaking to you through his word. And then after that, there may be something that he wants to do in your heart. There may be something that he inspires you to pray for other people. That's God leading you and moving you and guiding you. And he does this over and over. And we just want to recognize that God speaks to us through his word. God also speaks to us through open doors, right? I mean, (laughs) 
This is, this is my litmus test most of the time. I, I believe fundamentally that God wants to get us where he wants to get us more than we actually want to get there. So it's okay to like step out and to take risk and to try to do things that God will make open doors and he will close other doors. You see this all over the book of Acts. Paul thinks he wants to go this way and he encounters difficulty and God turns his path and he goes the other way. That's how come I live in this city. I had no plans or designs to move to Jonesboro, but God closed a door, opened a door, and here we are, right? And I bet almost everyone in this room has stories like that. I don't, that's how you got here. God opens doors and he closes doors. So you can trust him to speak in that. God speaks through open doors. He also speaks to us through our desires. He speaks to us through what we love and he speaks to us through what we hate. He speaks through, first of all, our desires. I'll share a story with you have this friend and his family, some of my best friends in the world. They have nine children, right? They didn't start out that way. They, there are four of them that were their biological children, and when we met them, they had adopted two children. And um, as we interacted with this couple, they were kind of like our mentors, but I was kind of their pastor at the same time, and we looked up to them, and they've just meant so much to us over the years. And the, the wife was always wanting to adopt more children. Like it was just this deep desire. She never could let it go. And oftentimes the, the husband was just kind of a little bit like, I'm not sure. And so finally um, he said, hey, could, you, could we just go out to lunch? And can we just talk about this? And so I sat down and he, he's my friend, so I could talk to him maybe a little more direct than I do other people. And I said, man, what, what do you want to do about this adoption thing? And he said, he said, man, really, like, I want to have more children. I think we have capacity. I think God's blessed us with this home and resources and finances, right? He said, but I'm just not sure that this is God. I was like, well, listen, man, if it's Satan, he dialed the wrong number, bro. Like, I mean, he's not going to, like, I mean, he's given you this desire and he's given you this wife. And so it, it gives me, like... A lot of joy to be able to say, listen, if there is a dream that glorifies God and God's made means and he's opened doors, like how kind of God to do that? God speaks through our desires. He also speaks through, right, not just things that we love and we desire, but things that we hate, things that we can't rest until God changes. I'll tell you my own story, right? So I grew up about three hours south, uh, south of here in Hot Springs. I was not a Christian growing up. Part of the reason was I don't think I actually heard the gospel. The other part was because I got caught up in a bunch of religion, to be honest with you, right? And I would see people that would praise God with their lips, and then they would curse other people, right? And there was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of brokenness. And I, I could just tell, like, that was just absolute hypocrisy. So from the moment that God has saved me, he's given me this desire to see a church that flourishes with diversity, both racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, that God would be pleased to bring people together. And it doesn't matter which city I've lived in. I will just drive through parts of cities and I will just weep. And I know that at the bottom of my heart, that's something that God's called me to do. And something. And, and what's really cool is that 
as, as I've been here and I've linked arms with some of you and other people in the city, I know that God desires the same thing. So God speaks through what we love. He speaks through what we hate. He speaks through open doors. And although, and this is where it takes real humility, because a remnant acts together. It would be one thing for all of us to say, well, I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do this. Like what we're doing inside of gospel communities is saying, hey, would you bring those desires to the table? Could we pray about those? And then let's try to walk through some open doors together. Instead of all of us going on our own mission, let God shape our mission by the desires that we have together. So um, I'm excited about that possibility. I see that happening over and over. The final point that I have is how God changes the world is through the promise of his presence. Look at verse 13. Because if this is just up to us... (laughs) will last about five minutes, but this is the promise. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Right? A people that were unfaithful, a people that were living for themselves, a people that really were indifferent to the plans and the purposes of God. As soon as they turned towards him, he said, I am with you. Right? So if you are in the midst of trying to respond to who God is and what he's done and you've grown tired or weary or discouraged, his promise is that he's with you. Right? If you are lacking direction and you don't know what the next step to take is, his promise is, I am with you. It's the same thing that Jesus says in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you till the end of the age. The reason that we can go forward and the reason that we can take steps towards seeing God rebuild our lives and rebuild the city is because He is always with us. If we need direction, He will be with us. As we go to the nations, he will be with us. As we go across the street, he will be with us. Right? As you gather and you're vulnerable and you share your, desire, your dreams and desires with other people, he promises to be with us. Our commitment to him pales in comparison to his commitment to us. He promises to endure with us, with himself. And that is the greatest promise that he can offer And he even went as far as to give us the measure of his commitment, which is not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all so that we know that he will graciously give us all things. And then he sealed us with the power of the Holy Spirit to remind us when things are difficult that we belong to him, that he will not leave us or forsake us despite us, that he is more committed to us than we are committed to to him. So we want to grow as a group of people saying, we are your people. We will respond. We will listen. We are going to fight together as your people to push back against apathy and indifference and just trying to live out the string. But we want to be a group of people that respond to who God is because he's great, because the needs of the world are great, and because there's no better way to live on the planet than listening to God and responding to who he is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to 
lead and respond to work and to trust, to obey and to rest. I pray that wherever anyone is on that spectrum today, that you would give them what they need. I pray that you would perform this word very personally for us, that we would be able to respond to who you are. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices, that you want to stir up our spirits um, as your people to do the things that you've called us to do. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the promise of your enduring presence. I pray that you will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.